Um, I am into accessibility, and there's two aspects of accessibility. One aspect is making new products, like you say, that will um, serve a need in someone's life. And the other aspect of accessibility is making the current technology, mainstream technology, usable. So, for example, on the, the latter one, in terms of making mainstream technology usable, uh, one of the projects that I led while I was at IBM, I dealt with um, making the web adaptable on the fly to people with disabilities. So you would get um, a web page and a, a test web page, and you would go through and you'd say, oh, it, it's, it's easier if it looks like this or if it'll talk to me or if it does this. This is the way that I interact with a mouse or a keyboard or whatever. And so you would sort of tell it what was the easiest way for you to interact with it. And from then on, it would make changes to every web page that you saw on the fly so that a page was presented to you in a way that best served your needs. So that's an example of making a mainstream technology more usable by people with disabilities. Um, in terms of the first thing, uh, serving a new need, uh, one of the first projects that I ever worked on was working with deaf kids who were signers and were learning to read and write English. So they, these were kids who were signers of American Sign Language, which is not English. American Sign Language has rules of its own. It has a somewhat different vocabulary. It has a very different grammar from English. And interestingly, it's not the same as British Sign Language or Australian mm -hmm. Sign Language. So even though all of these sign languages have you would think would be based on the local spoken language, they're still completely independent. So uh, if you're a signer of American Sign Language, you don't necessarily understand a signer of British Sign Language or a signer of Australian Sign Language. Anyway, so what we did in the project is we were working with young kids who used American Sign Language primarily for communication, and we were trying to bridge the gap between letting them know about um, what written English grammar was about versus what American Sign Language grammar was about. So this is a case of accessibility where you're making an application to serve a particular need of a population. That must be something that's extremely difficult to do. Yeah, it can be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but if you start by just going in and talking to people in these different communities, they will certainly tell you what their needs are. And then as a technologist, it's your job to say, oh, I, I have an idea of how we can maybe address that particular problem. I mean, even something as, as obvious as I grew up in the Star Trek generation is being able to talk to yeah. whatever automated assistant you have. I mean, it's 40 years later and it's still really not there. I mean, I've been covering the, the Dragon line of products since, uh, since they were first released. Um, and uh, we're still at a point where I wouldn't use it for email or, uh, or writing even a script or something like that. I do use it occasionally if I'm doing something very lengthy. Um, yeah, I know, and that's very interesting. And I think that creates a bit of a problem for a lot of the people that I work with because they have all seen Star Trek for 40 <laughs> years. And um, so I'll have older people say, ah, you know, it's really hard for me to do all that typing if I could just talk to my computer. Uh, and then you start listing, you know, how difficult it is. And yes, their speech recognition does work, but there's a whole set of constraints 
um, but people don't understand because they have been seeing it for 40 years. That's right, but it would obviously with the the, the arthritis problem is not to be uh, it's not to be laughed at when it comes to addressing a keyboard. My mother, who passed away a few years ago, was much more tech savvy than my father, um, but she could not operate the keyboard simply because of the problem she had, uh, literally holding a pen uh, toward the end of her life. So. Uh, it's still a breakthrough. I, I mean, just for my own business, I'd love to be able to take this interview and let the computer transcribe it. But as you know, yes. the, the computer winds up being very good at learning a voice. Dealing with two of them together is uh, is a much more challenging problem and one that it doesn't it doesn't handle at all in a, in a way that makes it uh, gives any utility whatsoever to what I do. I've always wanted that that ability, and uh, and so far you can't separate one voice from another with a machine. Right. Your example of your mother's uh, a very good example of how um, accessibility applications have pushed forward learning um, in other areas of computing. So, as you know, speech recognition has not been perfect. <clears throat> and particularly when it started, it, it was less than perfect. And they had trouble getting people to use it, by and large. You know, people would try it and then they go, well, it's easier for me to type. I'm not going to bother doing this. But it was people in the disability community who really needed it for one reason or another, like your mother, who worked with it and gave feedback to the developers who really helped improve it over the years. I also wish she had uh, had an opportunity to try the touch technology. Um, yeah. She really, uh, by the time the the uh, the Slate type of computers and the uh, the iPads and things got to the point, you know, where they're ubiquitous and, and affordable, she 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 was gone. Um, I can't get, I don't get into that too much with the, the touch. I just don't like it and I can type. But I can see where someday if that typing becomes uh, becomes too much of a chore, that uh, perhaps the touch capability will increase accessibility for, for people yeah. like me or people who yeah. end up in that situation. Yeah, and, and that's a perfect example. Um, the older population has actually um, resonated very well to being able to do the touch. Um, now and then, of course, there's my father who will call you over to help him change the light bulb. So it's a yeah. different, it's a different issue. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I can resonate to that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. I was going to say something about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, anyway, just go on, and I'll I'll probably remember what I was going yes, to say. It sounds like a fascinating area of study, though, and one that and one that is uh, is increasing value, as I said, as the population uh, as the population gets older. I, I like that question, because um, usually when I give a talk on this topic, uh, people will say, isn't this a problem that's going to go away? So I spent a lot of years answering that question at the end, so I thought, well, now I'll lead with that. When I start a talk, I say, this isn't a problem that's going to go away, um, because technology is continually changing. And then I get to the end, and the first question I always get is still, aren't you addressing a topic that's going to go away? The idea seems to be that everyone who's in their 20s thinks that they're not going to have any problems when they're 60 or 70, right? So there's sort of no thinking about how the eyesight and whatever isn't going to work as well, but even less recognition of the fact that the technology will fundamentally change. It's not that the people who are 80 or 90 now couldn't use the technology of their day. It's that the current technology is all new and fundamentally works in a different way than how they're used to interacting with anything. I find it very hard to imagine that 40 years from now we're going to have the same thing as an iPad, right? So what's going to happen to the generation 
who's 20, like my daughter, who's mm-hmm. very good with the iPad, you know, um, it, they're still going to have the same kinds of problems. Unless we start designing technology that really is looking at issues of older adults and designing with older adults, so taking them into account in the initial design process. And right now, that's not generally done. Um, there's a sense that there's not a market out there for the older adults, but, you know, that's that's a chicken and an egg thing, too, because it's hard for them to use technology. They're not so inclined to buy it, but if it really worked for them and met a need, it's not always that it's just hard to use. It's that the technology often doesn't address anything that they want to do. It's part of it. It resonates with me, too, because it's so part of the revolution with the journalism has to do with the, uh, the, the the conception at the moment that uh, uh, nobody is going to, to use the kinds of media that they've been using. Everything is going to be Twitter and Internet. And if you're not somewhere between the age of 30 and 35, you're not a market that anybody is really going to care about. And it, 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 it makes very little sense either from a, um, a, a statistical sense, simply counting the population or looking at who spends the, who has money and who spends money. So it's hard to figure that out, and you would also think that enough uh, firms would understand that manufacturing accessible products and products aimed at that kind of a that kind of a group of the population uh, would be a profitable business to be in. And maybe they'll come around to that eventually, but it doesn't seem to be much uh, much of that going on right now. Not yet. Oh, I I know when you mentioned Star Trek. Um one of the stories I often give in a talk um, relates to a Star Trek um, episode. So I, I, I smiled when you mentioned that. Um, it was actually Star Trek movie four. Uh, so back to my idea that, or my, my point that it, it's not just that older adults can't use technology. It's that fundamentally it's a different technology. So just not one they're used to. Uh, so if you remember in Star Trek movie four, they went back in time to save whales or something. I've forgotten all the details now. There be whales here. Yeah. (laughs) And um, so uh, Scotty needs to talk to, to do something on the computer. And so he talks to the computer and it doesn't recognize him. And they go, oh no, you got to use the mouse. And so he picks up and then he starts talking to the mouse. You know, so I think I I used that at some point in some news story somewhere along the line. Yeah. He yeah. says, oh, how, somebody explains him how to do it in his line is something like, how quaint. <laughs> yeah, so that's the whole point. It, it, obviously, Scotty knew about technology, but he didn't understand that technology, right? And that's what's happening to the older population. Yeah. Well, and in some, some respects, they just get up to be afraid of it, too. As I said, my, my father and my mother are completely different in how they approached technology and, uh, and uh, new trends and things like that, so. Yeah, there, there's more of a sense of things would break, and right now the, the younger kids don't think of it. They, they know the, the software, if they just try it again, it will work if they do this or that. I, I remember um, maybe 20 years ago, you, you would remember um, from Windows, uh, they would throw up a window if, if there was a software error, and it said, you performed an illegal operation. Yes. <laughs> I had a lot of older people who would just, you know, close it, and that was the end of that because they didn't want to do anything illegal, right? (laughs) My answer was always, no, you were too stupid to understand what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) No, but for people who are just learning to use a computer and suddenly they're told they've done something illegal, Mm -hmm. a very frightening message. That's not bad. Bad use of the language, (laughs) without, without question. 
Yeah. All right, let me pivot us around a little bit to the to the to the other part of the, you know, to the other part of our discussion. Um, it goes without saying that you are a prominent woman in the computer science field. Um, you know, you're the vice president of the ACM, and and but I do know. I mean, I know what the statistics read, and I continue to read the studies that say at some point along the line, young women seem to drop out of some of these professions, and. Uh, strikes me as being, you know, somewhat silly. There's there's simply no reason why there should be a sex bias in, in some of these fields. How do you how do you uh, uh, evaluate those kind of that kind of information? Um, how do you see it as a challenge? And how do you see it as something that gets in terms of the curriculum design? I mean that the ACM is is so so uh, is so uh, importantly uh, concerned about and things like that. How do you surmise? Uh, how do you get beyond that? I mean, obviously, 50% of the population, there are a lot of very talented people out there who happen to be women, and they ought to be involved in this profession. Right. Um, um, so in terms of computing, uh, yeah, the, the women will, will go to colleges in, in large numbers, but they don't take computing fields, right? So there's a lot of women in, like, biology, but less so in computing, architecture is actually worse in terms of number of women mm. who are involved. It's interesting. I, I, have a, I have a very good friend from my class to this day who's an architect who, who is a, lives in Los Angeles with her family and has been a professional architect all her life. So that's, uh, so that's interesting to hear. But do you, do you have a sense of why this is? Why does this happen? Uh, it, it's getting worse, by the way. Not, I, not I know that's what's uh, that's what's surprising. I mean, as I said, uh, the numbers I've read. Yeah, I I think in large part there are perception issues. Um, there's certainly a perception of if you're going to be a computer person, you just sit by yourself and you just type at your keyboard. And I think women want to be a little more social, interactive. Like I mean, you can't generalize to everybody all the time, but I think there is this perception of computing being. Um, a non-social kind of space. One of the things um, that we're doing here at RIT is working on the human-computer interaction um, development. So, so that happens to be my area why I came. Um, but we're making a big point about if you go into computing, you solve real-world problems. And I must say that we've got, um, it, at least in my area, we're up to 40% women, which is much higher than normal. Um, so I, I, I think there is some perception of what kinds of problems that you can work on, you know, and, and I, there really is something about wanting to address address a real need, not just sit in your office alone, <laughs> what can I say? Now, that doesn't cover all of the ACM curriculum. You asked about the curriculum. Um, I don't think the curriculum was specifically designed to address the problem of having more women, so that may not be the, the right way to be looking at it. ACM is trying to get more women involved by providing mentors, um, showing what kinds of careers that you can have. We've got the ACMW, which gets together um, groups, um, geographically dispersed groups of, of women, and we'll get some very distinguished people to come and give talks to the the students, the female students, about what kind of careers you can have. And so ACM is doing that kind of thing. I don't think it's so much in the curriculum development, as you suggested, that ACM is doing. Um, but the other 
kind of thing we're trying to emphasize is that this isn't a female-only problem. Um, so it may be called ACMW for women, but what we're really trying to do is get a lot of men involved too because we need men to also serve as the mentors for the, the young women who are coming along in the computing profession. What do you find about that, about that business, about it being a solitary profession in the first place? I mean, is that, is that a, I mean, as you said, it's a perception. I don't know if that's, is it true or not? It's not my experience. Again, you can never speak for everyone. I've always worked in teams of people. And so I have not found it solitary. When I was at IBM, it was teams of mostly um, programming uh, people. And now I lead efforts that are very multidisciplinary. So it, it's not just computing, but you get to work with people in the health professions. Um, I'm working with an architect now, working with people who are in art schools with their design skills. So I don't find it to be solitary at all. Very local level, we're working on videos that show more about the kinds of projects that you can do. And there are various um, websites for getting um, girls interested in computing at the early ages of school. And they're all emphasizing the project base, the team kind of work sort of thing. Yeah. Is some of it also have to do just simply with the way the the curriculum is set up. I mean, the kinds of problems that are dealt with. We, we, you know, we even see that when we talk about SATs and things like that, how we word questions and, and uh, whether the math and science is, is done in a problem-solving kind of thing rather than just strict formulas. Is, is there something to be done in that area? There, there could be. Um, I think another problem, though, is just um, when you get in these classes, if you're the only female student in there or there's only one other or something you don't have that many people to talk to in some sense um everybody goes out and the conversations are not conversations that you can necessarily easily engage in and so i suspect that a lot of the dropout is just not having people to easily work with so that would be the reasons for the mentorship programs and maybe internships at companies and, and uh, exactly. things like that things in that area yeah yeah. All right. What did we? Is there something? Anything else that you'd like to bring out on, on that, or any other subject? I mean, anything we missed? We kind of. Well, I didn't know what you wanted to. Um, yeah, I mean, we kind of went a whole range of things there. So. Yeah. Um, I, I, you you led with um, you know a high profile woman, and I I always feel somewhat uncomfortable about that because I don't really know how I got here in some sense. So. I, I don't think I did anything special, but I, I think I was just fortunate to have a lot of supportive people around me. And I, I don't know what to say other than there was never anyone who told me that I, I couldn't do it. Maybe I just had blinders on and I was just going after, here's what I want to do myself. I don't know. Um, but I I always feel somewhat uncomfortable when people say, well, how did you make it? You know, when others don't. Well, you don't. I mean, I've talked to a lot of very successful people over a very long career interviewed a lot of CEOs, um, more of whom were women as, as the years went by. Um, and the bottom line is, is it's a little bit of everything. I mean, you can feel that way. And a lot of it may have just been happenstance and may have been the fact that, as you say, you have blinders on. The other point of the matter, however, is that there's a certain amount of talent and, and drive and expertise that you did have and you did bring to the table. And that was, re that was recognized by people who are willing to recognize talent and ability 
uh, irrespective of, you know, gender, yep. sexual preference, race, religion, and all right. those other crazy things, um, which have no, which have no uh, bearing on talent or ability. So you, right. have to, you get some credit, in other words. <laughs> Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, I I really was very lucky though. In in all the years, I I never had anyone who I felt said you can't do what you want to do. I mean, I did often look around the room and realize I was the only woman in the room, and that that can be somewhat daunting. But no one ever said, "Why are you here? You shouldn't be 